Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Shopify. You might be an aspiring entrepreneur or an established business owner, but you're never alone on your entrepreneurial journey. When you have a question, need some advice, or crave inspiration, just visit the new Shopify space in LA, open seven days a week. To see upcoming classes and events, go to shopify.com slash LA. That's shopify.com slash LA. Shopify has moved in to help you move up. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by TransferWise. Ever send money abroad? Don't use a bank or PayPal? That's like going to McDonald's for a salad. They have it, but other people do it way better. Instead, use TransferWise. TransferWise always has a great exchange rate and a super low fee, which is probably why they already have over 4 million customers. And the borderless account lets you hold over 40 currencies at once and convert them whenever you like. Test it out for free at TransferWise.com slash Chang. That's TransferWise.com slash Chang. Or download the app today. to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. We were off last week because of Thanksgiving. Hope you guys had great times with your friends and family if you were able to celebrate it. I was down in Northern Virginia at my parents' house where my sister and mother cooked a tremendous meal. My in-laws came in. I really wanted to cook, but they wanted to make sure that I was out of the kitchen, mainly because I stress everyone out when I cook. I just made the gravy. But it's always can be challenging hanging out with my family. And I think they would probably say the same thing, hanging out with me. But I love them very much. But the thing that overrides anything Thanksgiving drama is the food. And it's probably one of the best eating days of the year for myself, as it is for a lot of people, because of the variety. I I get the best of the things I grew up eating as uh, American. You get the turkey, stuffing, green beans, sweet potatoes, all that stuff, and the pies. And on the Korean end... I get bindetok, which is like a crispy bean pork pancake. I get noodles and um, my mom's very, very delicious, famous braised short ribs. So the plate of food is just this hodgepodge of the best of the best. So if you have a Korean friend and they have Korean Thanksgivings, I highly encourage you to hitch a ride the next Thanksgiving because it is so much more interesting than I think a traditional Thanksgiving. Because listen, I'm not going to talk shit about turkey, but when you have other things to eat, it's fun and it's delicious. Anyway, uh, it's been a crazy busy year. Thought it might be a good time to sort of talk about all the things that's been going on. Major Domo opened up. We're having a, a great time in LA. We just opened up two more restaurants here in New York. It's a lot between the restaurants and the podcast and. Um, Now, season two of Ugly Delicious, which we're able to finally announce, it's been a lot. And I've been trying to figure out how to balance this. I have an addiction to work. It's something I am incredibly fearful of stopping. And I have to stop working mainly because I want to be present for my wife and uh, expecting child. My wife and I are expecting our first kid. So splitting all the time between LA and New York and all these restaurants, it's something that needs to give. I don't know how, but I do know that I'm going to have to let go of some stuff. You know, this is all new to me. I can talk about a lot of different things, but how and what to do as an expecting father is something that I, I've i only heard or read about. So I'm sure I'm going to talk more about it. Probably one of my favorite things to listen on the Ringer Network is when Bill and Cousin Sal have their parent corner. It's just hilarious. 
I'm thrilled to hopefully be able to participate in that. But um, I have a lot of fear as to how I'm going to be able to step away from work and be the kind of husband and, and father I hope to be. And um, I'm thankful to have the best team around that allows me to do all the things. And as we continue to push and to grow and, and you know, we grow to provide, right? Not just for myself, but for everyone else in our organization. So between all the TV, the podcast and the restaurants, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone that supports us, that visits our restaurants, that listens to our podcast or watches the TV show on Netflix or elsewhere. And especially to the staff that makes this all happen. I got to figure out how to get some work-life balance real soon and uh, probably talk to you about it a lot as it goes on. I'm excited. It's something I've been looking forward to, being a dad. It's probably the most excited I've ever been. And my wife is doing great. It's truly a miracle how this all happens. But we opened up a couple more restaurants the past month. I, When we opened up Major Domo, it's funny, you don't think that you're going to have other restaurants to deal with. But in the Time Warner Center, we opened up a larger sort of deluxe version of Nudo Bar and a new thing called Bong Bar. It's a, how should I say, we take vertical spits, we put marinated meats on it from that are Korean or Japanese, and breakfast we put mortadella and slice it in bread that we roll in the moment. And I think it's super delicious. So it's a lot. I'm trying to figure it all out. But, uh, you know, I was... Uh, in LA last week before Thanksgiving. And I had another meal at a restaurant called Spoon by H. It's not technically in Koreatown. And I was really nervous and apprehensive about talking about it because I just, I don't want it to get like screwed over by like a deluge of customer requests. But at the end of the day, I think that the family, the Huang family that runs Spoon by H, they've been doing it for six years in LA. It is all that's right in the restaurant universe. It's literally a strip mall spot. It's probably about 600, 700 square feet. There's uh, essentially no bathroom, so they can't really service it as a full service restaurant. But it's a Korean dessert shop with shaved ice and some baked goods. But talking about doing the most with what you got. And I am not the most optimistic person in things, but when I see the underdog and someone that's striving to do the best thing possible, like I, I see in this family that runs Spoon by H, it gives me so much joy and hope and uh, overwhelming sense of good in what they try to do and the food they try to make. Both Their desserts are unbelievable. And the fact that they don't really have a dedicated ovens like a traditional bakery or dedicated like professional kitchen, yet they make food that is so fucking good. And I highly encourage you guys to stop by for both desserts and for a regular meal. It is my favorite restaurant of the past year. I've said it was like the best restaurant of the year for me. And hopefully you guys feel the same way. I just ask that you guys treat them fairly and kindly because they are full of goodness. Um, I had this manduguk, which is this Korean uh, dumpling soup and... I tell you what, it was probably one of the most delicious things I've ever had in my life. It was like a tonkotsu, like Japanese pork broth, but with Korean stuff. If it doesn't make any sense, it's like the best kind of home cooking from a Korean person you could ever have, but done in a way that doesn't really make sense, right? Like they're self-taught. And I've been saying this for a while, quite a while that being a home-taught 
amateur cook is probably the next frontier where people can get ideas for stuff, right? Like everything's sort of been done and you need to have some ingenuity and some originality. And that's going to come from places that you don't quite expect. And I have to try really hard not to take some of the ideas from the Huangs because it's really brilliant stuff from the fried rice they make to the guksu, like the noodles. Um, even like they have this like weird, cheesy seafood pasta. It's delicious. Their curry they make from scratch. They have like samgyeopsal, which is like these lettuce cups. They, their version is like a lettuce cup. If it's not making any sense, it's because it doesn't make sense to me other than it's insanely delicious. And like whenever I go there, I think about the pod that I did with Kevin Clark, who covers the NFL and the ringer who says that like the next generation of ideas comes from not just college, but the high school level, right? Because they're free to come up with new stuff. And Spoon by H to me is the best representation of that. They're doing things that a professional culinary trained chef wouldn't do, but what they have is care. And when you eat their food, you can taste how much love and care they put into it and thought. So I am incredibly enthusiastic about this restaurant. I know I'm probably going to ruin it for some of the regulars that took me there. So apologies, Dave Cho stopped taking me to his restaurants because I kept on ruining them. And Roy, you know who you are. He's in the film business. He took me there. Uh, apologies, but I think that they want a bigger restaurant. So I hope, hopefully they are successful enough where they can get a bigger restaurant. And however I can help them, I will, because it's the kind of cooking we need more of. And I find what they do truly to be remarkable and inspirational. And it's the food that I think about the most. It is so fucking good. Um, before I, I ramble on and on and on this pod, we did this several weeks ago, right after Crazy Rich Asians premiered on, on the big screen. We recorded this with John Chu, the director of Crazy Rich Asians. He's directed a bunch of other movies, but this was easily the one that has been one of the biggest movies of the past year. There was a lot of debate as to, at least for myself and my friends, as to how this movie was going to be, how significant it was. And I, I was shocked when I finally saw it as to how awesome it was. And because we've been so busy, we've been banking some podcasts. So I'm talking to you on this new device on my phone. So if it sounds like shit, hopefully it doesn't sound like shit, but that's why I, I'm traveling so much right now. It's hard to, to sit down in a proper studio. So when we were in LA, we banked a bunch and we banked this with John Chu. We wanted to release this pod when Crazy Rich Asians came out again on streaming services. Like I think you can buy it on iTunes right now. I certainly did. And I watched again. And I watched the director's cut and I watched all the deleted scenes. And it actually answered a lot of my questions I had about the movie. And the funny thing is this movie caused me to have a greater appreciation about Asian American culture and how it's seen in the big screen in culture at large. And I wanted to find a better way to talk about it and having John on this pod, I was very thankful that he wanted to discuss his career and why it got made and how it got made and the importance for it. And right around this podcast, when we recorded it, Aquafina just did Saturday Night Live. That's a massively important moment for Asian Americans. And you might have realized by now, if you're a repeat listener, there's been a lot more Asians on this podcast. And it's not something I, I intended on. In fact, we didn't even intend to have a normal podcast. It was supposed to just talk about the restaurant industry. 
and some of the things that interested me. And we're going to get more to the the post-opening diaries uh, of the restaurants and more of the inside baseballness of restaurants. That's definitely going to happen. But one of the things that I wanted to do organically was talk about some of the things that are important as an Asian American and, and having the the soapbox to do it. I, I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't going to alienate anyone else. But, you know, if you are Asian American, this was a source of solidarity. And if you're not Asian American, if you listen to it, hopefully it gives you a greater understanding of a, a culture that you might not know too much about. But when Crazy Rich Asians came out, I think that there was a lot of hype. There was a lot of um, pressure for it to be the best thing ever. Privately, I was super critical of it. Like I thought that it wasn't the right forum. I didn't like how it was being compared to Black Panther. All the things that I could pick a hole in, I did. And I watched the movie and all of my ignorance and all of my bias was wrong. And I was completely moved by the movie. I thought it was widely important. And I had a new understanding of how I wanted to participate in things that are Asian American. And ultimately, I think we need solidarity and anything that we can do to sort of promote it, to get diversity within that is important. I don't think Crazy Rich Asians is a viewpoint or a a slice of how Asians live. I think most Asians are actually poor. There's There's a lot of poor Asians out there. This is literally an anomaly, but it's important that we embrace all perspectives of Asians in this world. And this is just one. And once I understood that, that this has to be almost like a cubist understanding of things, of truth, of reality, I, I just wanted to take a step back and enjoy the ride and to talk to someone that I feel like is a very important director and did an amazing job. And the one thing I'll add that I was super excited about the version you get on Apple was the director's cut was, I swear to God, when I watched this movie, I couldn't understand how when they landed in Singapore the edited movie had no idea about like where they put their luggage. So if you watch the the director's cut or the deleted scenes, they explain how they were able to travel Singapore without their luggage. And that's how weird I am. I couldn't stop thinking about where the fuck their luggage went. But John covered all the bases and, and uh, uh, super proud of what he's done. And as usual, I'm happy when I'm wrong, right? I, of course, I wanted the movie to be successful, but I was afraid. Anyway, without rambling on too much further... This is my conversation with John Chu and his movie that was a smash hit, Crazy Rich Asians. I have a great guest today, the director, filmmaker, John Chu, most recently of the international sensation hit, <laughs> Crazy Rich Asians. Thanks. You should be my publicist. That's yeah, I, I'm, I'm in. I can get. And, uh, you were just in New York. I read that every night in service, we have logs of what happened in a restaurant, <laughs> what we sold, and so on and so forth. And I was like, John Chu is eating at Cobar? Like, fuck, how did I miss this? I can't believe you know, because we went in there incognito. It was super last minute. I was with Ronnie Chang from The Daily Show, and uh, we rolled in and got some great food. There, you didn't drop your time. name or nothing? Nothing. Zero. I had no idea they would have known. I'm so proud that they spotted you. I can't even... I'm amazed. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great seat. They took care of us really well. And we had this like tofu head thing. It was so freaking good. Good. So good. And uh, you were in New York. Most of the Crazy Rich Asian cast was in New York for... 
Aquafina was hosting Saturday Night Live. So uh, she called me up last week when they announced it and she's like, you got to come. I was like, I'm dropping everything. I leave for Vancouver next week for like three months. And, Filming uh, a new, sh- new uh, movie. We're doing a, a series for Apple and I'm doing the first two episodes. So What's I, the series called? We don't have a name yet, <laughs> but it's based off of this 11-year-old Hildy true story, a reporter who broke this murder in her town and wow. became sort of national news all over it. It's a really beautiful story, actually. But yeah, we were, I'm leaving. And, and so I, I dropped everything to go to watch Aquafina do SNL. My first time ever watching it live, which is pretty amazing. And I've watched every episode of SNL since 1995, probably. And uh, it's crazy. I think for me, having seen a few of the shows when you're there, it's amazing how fast they switch segments. So crazy. So crazy how fast and how focused they are. It's not at the biggest studio. It looks like when you see pictures, that's huge. Super intimate. We were watching in Lorne Michaels' office, wow. which he has monitors in there, and you can have drinks and food. And then he has like these glass sliding doors that you can open up and then go out onto the patio to watch the show actually happen in front of you. And that was pretty sick. How significant is it? And it's so hard because I feel like if you're not Asian or Asian-American, you might read it and you're like, oh, that's cool. But mm-hmm. why was it so insignificant in having Aquafina host? It's the first time in 18 years that an Asian female has hosted that show. I think only the fifth Asian person to ever host that show. Can we show. name them? Um, the Rock. Rock. Kumail. Lucy Liu. Who else was it? It's not been a regular thing regardless. It has not been a regular thing. Not <laughs> at all. And I don't think any cast member has ever been. Oh, Aziz, Aziz has done it too, right? Aziz, so there's yeah, been five. Aziz, That's the yeah, five. Yeah, yeah. There's never been an Asian American cast member? I don't know the stats on it. I don't want to say no, claim no, no, that, I'm, but I'm, I'm not, I don't actually think so. And it's part of that is like, it's just not something that's happened, right? And yeah. I'm bummed that I haven't got to see it yet, and I'll definitely watch it on Hulu, but it's super significant. Even just to see her go up there and do the opening monologue, and she told the story of how she was outside 30 Rock when Lucy Liu first hosted 18 years ago, and she didn't have a ticket. She just was outside, and how inspiring it is to see her that woman walk into 30 Rock to go host Saturday Night Live, and now 18 years later, there she was, right, uh, and has the, the seat of the house in the middle of it. I was pretty beautiful and emotional, actually. And um, she's been steadily blowing up her career, right? On her own terms. Yeah. She's the hardest working person I know, maybe other than my father, uh, (laughs) who's slaving away in the restaurant business for the last 50 years. So she's blowing up. She's doing her thing. We'll get to your father in a bit because that's fascinating to me. Um, We have a mutual friend in uh, Steve Jang. Yes. (laughs) Steve Jang connected me with Henry Golding. Can you tell that story? Because Steve Jang is probably, and I say this, he's maybe the coolest (laughs) Korean guy I know. (laughs) He's pretty cool. He doesn't, he's just, Mr. Cool, he's like Mr. Wolf, you know? <laughs> it's true, it's true. So I was looking for this Nick Young character in Crazy Rich Asians when we were casting, and I didn't know this character had to be very specific. They had to have the English accent, perfect, because they're going to school there and raised there. So they had to have that. They had to have this effortless charm. And so we looked all across the world, thousands of auditions, and there's this one guy in Singapore that was recommended to us by our financial controller in Malaysia who was just a host, never acted in a movie before, Henry Golding. So I did some digging and looked at all his Instagrams, thought he was amazing, he was great, but I don't know if he could act. So then I cyber-stalked him even further. And on Facebook, I saw that our mutual friend was Steve Jang. And I've known, I grew up in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. And so I know a lot of Steve Jang's friends. Steve Jang came into the restaurant and has eaten several times. So 
I reached out to Steve. I said, hey, do you know this dude? And what is he? Who is he? And does he act? And he's like, man, I don't know. I, um, <laughs> I guess back in the day, he hung out with a lot of Japanese models in Tokyo. Um, so he knew Henry's wife, who was a Japanese model. And so he's like, he's the life of the party. You'll love him. So he emailed both of us and connected us. And that was the beginning of our conversation about this movie. So when Steve was telling me the story, I was like, you got, what? How the hell did that happen? That's so like, it seems like it had to be. There's so many magical things, and I'm not sure how much I believe in that or not, but I know every sign that happened gave me encouragement. Like, I'm supposed to do this movie. Win or lose, fail or win, like, whatever it's, I'm supposed to do this. This is part of my So let's, let's go back, yeah. and not so far back, because I mean, <laughs> after we talk about your dad, I probably want to talk about how you got into film, yeah. but yeah. the book comes out what year? Book comes out probably like seven, eight years ago, eight years ago, maybe. And yeah. does very well. Does very well. And all my cousins and my mother email me saying, you got to read this book. You got to read this book. You got to read this book. I was in the middle of shooting something else, but I did read it and I loved it. But I was in the middle of shooting stuff. And who's the author again? Kevin Kwan. He's done three books since then in the same sort of universe. And so, yeah, so it always sat in the back of my head. And I think it was maybe three or four years ago, I was doing Now You See Me Too with some of the biggest actors, Mark Ruffalo, Morgan Freeman, and all these people. And I felt a little bit, and it was a great movie. We had a great time. I felt like I wanted to do something more dangerous, something more that would wake me up a little bit. I'd been around in the film business for so long. And the one thing that is funny, because my friend, she would always make fun of me and say, John, you, you have the best life because you have a very ish life. Like you're famous ish. Like you can get things, but you're you're not so famous. People recognize you on the street. You make really successful movies. You make people a lot of money, but you're, you're not such big movies that you like get sucked into this other world and get all Hollywood. <laughs> so she's like, it's a great way to like live. And I kind of was like, that's a little offensive, but uh, <laughs> but it was kind of true. And I was like, well, what am I doing here? Like, well, I'm getting so many great opportunities. What am I actually saying? And so the one thing that scared me the most was my own cultural identity. That's something that when you're the only Asian person in a room, last thing you want to do is bring up that you're Asian and talk about how you're Asian. Like, I know a lot of people go through that. And not that I wasn't proud. I just... Like, I'm doing the work. I got to like- You don't want to be movies. reminded <laughs> yeah, of it all the time. Exactly. You just want to be known for your excellence in what you do. Exactly. I want to be on the lists of all directors, all the great directors, not just the Asian directors. And how do you feel when someone says, John's one of the best Asian directors out there? Because <laughs> you've read that, you heard that, and yeah. it's like- One, now I'm more proud of that than maybe I was before. Before, I wanted to be known as a director. That's like the highest levels. That's what we can do. Now, actually, it's weird. After having done the movie, there is a pride about it. It's not as— um, It's a weird pride, but right? It is a weird, but it is a weird pride. But this movie, really, well, at least the journey towards the movie, I would think would happen, would actually happened online. People were talking about the whitewashed out movement, talking about Oscar so white, and I realized I was part of what they consider Hollywood mm. my whole life. I didn't do independent movies. I only have done studio movies. So I'm like, oh, I'm part of the problem, and— if I'm in a position of power, why am I not trying to do at least something about it? And all the advice you get as being an artist is do the things that scare you. And so that's, I was like, all right, let's try this. And also the thing that scares me is I don't have all the answers. Right. I don't know the answer of my freaking cultural identity. Hmm. I don't know what line to walk. I don't know what things to say. I don't speak it fluently. I understand Mandarin, but I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs. 
And that really scared me because I don't want to put shame on my family or on my friends or any, any way. But we just had to jump. So I remembered the book or my sister reminded me of the book. And when I called my agent about it, he said, how did you know that they just sent you the script? <laughs> so on the same day that I asked about it, they had sent the script to me. There was another weird thing that happened. And another weird thing, like a week later, I found out that Kevin Kwan actually is very good friends with my cousin Vivian Chu, who lives in New York. And all the stories that she would tell about the Chews in Cupertino, which is what the book is about, the family that had to work for their money, he got stories from her, actually. Wow. And I'm actually in the book. At one point, Nick is defending the family and says, yeah, you know, yeah, they have to work hard for the money, but they work and they're focused. And they even have a cousin who directs movies in the movie business. When those things happen, and I'm like, what? I'm in the book and I have the quote in my hand. You just know, like, someone somewhere is telling you to go, go, go do this movie. And so we we did. Do you find it strange? Because I do as well. Like, I've never wanted to be associated with Korean culture or Asian culture for whatever reason. I've, I think I've worked my entire life to run as far away from it as possible. <laughs> but simultaneously, I think I've been waving the flag of, like, acceptance and inclusion. And the older I get, they're more— important topics because for whatever reason I feel that there's a sense of responsibility absolutely and even though it's not a clear answer as to where it's going to go I feel like I have to like somehow educate I have a soapbox if I can understand this in terms of talking about what Asian Korean identity is for me it allows me to better empathize certain things I see in my own industry right yeah. and I think at best it is a merit-based thing obviously there's a lot of things that prevent that from happening yeah the patriarchy, just money issues, gender, mm -hmm. whatever. And then I was talking to one of my female chef friends who is so and rightfully upset about the top 50 best awards where it's like they still have a best female chef award. Mm -hmm. And how some are like, that's a necessary step to get to just one award. Yeah. And if I had won best Asian chef award, I would be incredibly upset, mm -hmm. right? And the reason I'm bringing a lot of these I'm not going to say taboo, but they're typical subjects that walk around because on one hand, you're grateful that you are getting notice for your work and you understand it's a stepping stone to getting to somewhere else. Yep. But it's also so like a pyrrhic victory. And I just want to shoot it straight. Like I was also feeling that when I read all the previews and all the hype for this movie, I was like, yep. Ugh, I want to support this. <laughs> but is it like winning the best female chef award, which is great honor, but simultaneously limiting in the scope because I want everyone to be awarded for their efforts, not for like classifications as such, totally. you know? One, I think Warner Brothers has been a great partner in never positioning this as just an Asian movie. I think we couldn't. When you're doing a movie, you have to get more people than just that community. They knew from the very beginning. So we positioned it, at least in the trailers and stuff, as not just an Asian thing. It's called Crazy Rich Asians, so people automatically have a reaction to a name like that. Negative, positive, or they don't think it's for them. We actually dealt with that in last November when we were testing the movie. To recruit people to go see the movie hmm. for free was a 25 to 1, which is so low. 25 people you have to ask before one person says yes to a free movie that you're showing them from a big Hollywood studio is extremely low. I thought we were screwed. I was like, the Asian people were offended by the title because they didn't necessarily know the book. The people who knew the book were suspicious of Hollywood, the Asian people. The Caucasian people or any other ethnicity thought, oh, this is a movie for Asians and so it's not for us. We were trapped every single way. 
But what the beautiful thing about movies is the audience will speak for it. And so when we are now at $170 million, we're passing that later today. Amazing. Um, Congrats. Domestic. That's just domestic. That's just here in America. We're the in the top 10 movies of the whole year, of every movie, every superhero movie. We're the number six romantic comedy of all time that has to go beyond just being Asian. And, and our motto the whole time, and a lot of people say this, but the specificity creates the universality. And I 190% believe that we are all human beings and that we all share very similar journeys. Maybe the details are different. Maybe the food is different. But we are human beings who are looking for connection, who are looking to have connection. And we all trying to find our place in this world, why we're here, what we're here to do, what our purpose is. All those things keep us away from each other and that fear keeps us away from each other. So when a movie can express at its most authentic, purest truth, even though we're a fun like romp, whatever, that's like the sort of sugar on top. Deep down, Constance, Michelle Yeoh, Henry, Gemma, their performances are so grounded and so truthful in that. And we made sure that their parts weren't rompiness and weren't crazy and over the top. They had to be, and even Aquafina, who's super funny and out there, when you see her as the friend who's supporting her friend, like you believe her, you believe mm-hmm. the truth that this is a really good friend, even though she has no edit button on her mouth. That stuff, I think, will puncture culture and spread that faster than anything. Now, did I think that would actually happen? I don't know. I We have no idea. There's movies that I thought would be big that I did that were like the lowest grossing of all time. So, but I knew what we had to make. And I think that's, even when I see you, the biggest thing what I admire you about, is it's about the work. Like we're craftsmen, we're building stuff and we're storytellers. And it's not just the movie itself. It's everything around the movie. You have to be as creative and as much of a storyteller of setting up the movie as the movie itself, of selling the movie, of people convincing a studio to go put money into this movie, to convince audiences to go see it as the actual movie. And so I love that. I love creating the event around it. So. And that is so much easier said than done. It's true. It's because true. the process is just maddening. And, you know, it was so interesting because I've been dipping my toes in this a little bit more and to not be pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest thing is you were pigeonholed the opposite end, yeah. right? To yeah. dip in to indie films in a specific sort of genre that however it's marketed, even though it wasn't, right? At yeah. the end of the day, it's a romantic love story with comedy like underpinnings, yeah. but also simultaneously serious. And yeah. I was shocked at how well the movie was and how much I enjoyed it. But also I was thinking about, man, like did John and the cast, did they understand the burden <laughs> that you were going to go like mm-hmm. during it or maybe after your editing, you're like, shit, like this is, this is like, this is it. Like yeah. we have to, we have to crush this. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we did. And also we chose to be naive at the same time. Like I knew what it meant to me, even going into it. I knew what it would mean to my family. I knew the uphill battle we would have to fight to even get this set up at a studio. So from the very top, we understood those stakes. Early on, we also were, um, when we went out to all the studios with it, there was actually a demand for it because of the Oscar So White movement stuff that was happening. And so what was great is we had choices and Netflix offered to take the movie and they offered a lot more money than Warner Brothers and a platform for everyone in the world to see it as quickly as possible, one button all at the same time all around the world. When I read that, I was like, 
man, that is a significant decision because you're basically laying it all out there. Yeah. You're yeah. betting on yourselves and the and the movie. And it was very personal because literally it was millions of dollars more personally to myself, not to the project, not to be spread out. Guaranteed. Like, guaranteed. Like the next week, I would be given a check to go be able to do whatever I want to my house to get as many babysitters as I want. It was like, okay. And what what made you decide with your group, we got to pass on this? And we had 15 minutes to decide. So we didn't even know the offers until 15 minutes before. They said, you only have 15 minutes before we pull the offer. So there was 22 people on a call getting read the offer. And I actually didn't have the power to say anything. I am a director on it and a producer on it, but I didn't own the property. Kevin, the producers owned, the people who paid for it, owned it technically. And they, Nina, Brad, John Panadia of Ivanhoe and all that, they deferred to Kevin and I. Wow. Which... That is a very bold thing to do. All the lawyer, I'm sure all their lawyers and managers were like, what? So they deferred to Kevin and I. And Kevin and I talked a lot about what this means to our community, what this means for movies, what this means. And we understood that being on a big screen was the victory. Like to have a giant company, a giant corporation spend tens of millions of dollars and tell the world that these characters and these people who are falling in love, are worth your time and energy to leave your house, pay for parking, do all that stuff, and get into a dark room, turn off the lights, and listen to their story. That is the event. It's putting the piece of art in the museum, putting it in the Louvre. Whereas there's street parties all the time. Like you can, Netflix is already breaking all the rules and doing all great stuff. They're doing it. But to actually put it on the big screen to say your focus is your payment into this, that was a message that we knew that could spread through all media and could have this pop. And uh, so we held our breath and said, we, we got to go with Warners. That's And there was no guarantee of how much marketing money they'd spend. There was no guarantee of how many theaters they'd even put us in. And we hadn't made the movie yet, so they didn't know what we were getting. So all that said, Kevin Sujihara, who's the head of Warner Brothers, we, I knew a little bit, so I trusted that he would take care of it. But we also had to make a great movie. So first day on the on the movie, we're all feeling that pressure. And we all looked at each other and said, we had to throw that out. Like, we got to make a great movie. That's, that's the only thing. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Skagen. Cultural identity plays a big part of Skagen's Danish-inspired watches and jewelry. Skagen is named after a Danish coastal town and is inspired by the people who live there. The Danish lifestyle focuses on what's meaningful, being part of a community, living purposefully, but also making time for good food, good music, and good company. No wonder Denmark is known as the happiest place on earth. I really believe that statement. As crazy as that sounds, I go there a lot. Skagen connects the dots between culture and design with watches and jewelry that reflect the less is more concept. Skagen offers men's and women's watches, jewelry, and even smart watches in a variety of styles. They create styles driven by their guiding principle, good design for better living. Skagen products look right at any time of day, anywhere in the world, now or 10 years from now. Because simplicity isn't just beautiful, it's versatile. Skagen stays true to their heritage, and that makes every design something special. They gave me a Skagen watch the other day. It's fantastic. I love my Skagen watch. I get a lot of compliments on it. Visit skagen.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. That's skagen.com, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. 
Today's Day Cheng Show is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. And Hotel Tonight has partnered with these awesome hotels to help them sell these unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Seriously, if you love scoring amazing hotel deals, you gotta try Hotel Tonight. Forget scrolling through never-ending lists. Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels they think you'll love. And they'll even give short profiles of each hotel, complete with all the info you need and pictures of what the rooms really look like. Plus, even though their name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can even book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. Me and my wife, we use Hotel Tonight for our Thanksgiving trip to visit our parents in Northern Virginia. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. And now, back to the show. I can't imagine how difficult that decision was, right? And, and I'm wondering, and I'm going back because I have to compare everything to my, my industry, and I'm going back to something, again, that same chef who loathes this stupid award said, <laughs> I'm not going to stop complaining about this until there are average female chefs winning the awards that you average male chefs are winning, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and I look at this now and from that perspective, and I'm like, would you guys have made this decision? This is, in, to put in the context, I think some of the disadvantages that I think this movie or Asian culture movies that are not representative in Hollywood today mm-hmm. have to go through. And let's just say in 20 years, there's more Asian-centric films. Mm-hmm. And this isn't going to be necessarily groundbreaking. This isn't, you know, another 18 years, there'll be 18 different Asian yeah. American actresses hosting SNL where yeah. it's commonplace. And that's the world that I think we're all pushing for. Yeah. Would you have said yes to the Netflix deal then? You know what I mean? Because this is like a very interesting time where yeah. everything you do as an Asian American artist, craftsman is pushing this message forward so we don't have to talk about it again. Exactly. That would be our goal is that nobody remembers this. Everyone's like, wait, that was a big deal for breaking all this ground. And we knew that that is going to happen. We are on that trajectory. I know the all the people of our generation and younger generation are going to break through. They are creative enough. They are talented enough. The doors are open. Like The power is shifting. So it's going to happen. So we knew that in order to even remember ourselves in 20 years, like the movie had to be good. We had to focus on the craftsmanship and know that 20 years from now, we can still look back and be proud of this movie, not because it was the first this or first that, but because it told a great story that engages you, that is timeless. So I think we're in a, our whole world is in a transition. I mean, the internet only happened, what, 15 years ago where the lights turned on and suddenly all these little nodes that have been separate from each other that have been told by Hollywood, by media, by governments, by religion, what to do, what to feel, what to believe. Now all of a sudden, electricity turns on and we get to talk to each other about what did he say to you? What did she say to you? Oh, wait, we got to double check that shit. And then oh, we can find out about anything we want and maybe half 90% of it is false, but that 10% is true. We are just waking up. This organism that we're becoming one is like just starting to pump and we're going to go, th- this is our growing period. And if that means sometimes we have to put some braces on some awards to get female chefs known, to get female hosts known just for this period of time so that people 
see that as a normal thing, and then we can erase those. They never have to say first time in 18 years. It's just Aquafina's hosting. Exactly. This may seem like tedious or relatively insignificant, but it's very important if you haven't had that ability to just like read about it, that it's not a special thing. People are working hard from every group, not just Asians, but anyone that is trying to get their voice heard to get to the point where they're not special. Yeah. When they do something. Totally. And that's the important thing that I've really wrestled with in 2018, which has been a great year of reckoning to be like, I get it. I'm getting it better than I ever did before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, just look at Asians and dancing. When I was young, Asians weren't known for dancing. All of a sudden, America's Best Dance Group comes out and every group is like these amazing Asian b-boys or poppers, Kaba Modern, Jabberwockies, and then... Now, Asians, you're expected to be able to dance. Which is crazy. And that happened within five and six years. Like that shift of what the quote-unquote public thinks of what Asians are. It's crazy how fast image can change just by presenting the truth of what's happening. And how much has it changed the industry of Hollywood, which is so different than any other industry out there? And I just seen it peripherally this past year, getting to know a little bit better, but... Mm -hmm. There's just not many Asian people in general in Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. How how have you carved out your own niche? How have you, it's true. It's like, you've done some massive movies, Mm -hmm. right? How the hell were you like, I have to do this. And also in the sense of like, there weren't really other, many other people, right? There are. Yep. But you are like one of the few people that were happened to be like, yeah. You're Taiwanese though, right? Well, my dad's from China and my mom's Taiwan, so it can go. Either way, but like to to just be like, I'm going to do this. I want to do it the way I want, but it's not like there's a large group that you can fall on as a network. It's true. It's true. But there were a lot of groups along the way that helped inch me forward. There were a lot of people, I, I grew up in the Silicon Valley, guests who would come to the restaurant well, my dad would, you know, talk about our family. He's constantly telling about the family. I'm the youngest of five. He would say, oh, my youngest son's really into movie making. And these computer people would be like, we're st- making these products that can capture video. Here, let, let me give you a beta computer. Hey, uh, this guy from Adobe, let me give you Photoshop and Premiere. And this, we just made it. It's all beta. We don't have any manuals, but he can learn on this. So every couple months, I'd get a new computer with new software. And I was ahead of the digital game, especially at 16, 17 years old, before anyone could even afford that stuff. I was getting it. So there was a community of that. There's a community, obviously, of my family supporting me in, in whatever I was doing. And my dad always said, America's the greatest place in the world. They came when they didn't know a word of English at 19, 20 years old. My dad was a bartender, wanted to start a restaurant, picked this one spot, and 50 years later, it's still there. They said, if you love what you do and work harder than everybody else, that's the only thing that counts. Don't get bogged down by, oh, you can't get this and you can't get that. Keep your head on the ground and and focus on the work and it will come. So I think those things, and then obviously at USC, the support system of organizations. um, And you went to USC specifically for film. For film, yeah. Mm -hmm. You knew it. Yeah, all my brothers and sisters went to UCLA. And I, from fifth grade on, sixth grade on probably, I knew I wanted to do movies. And so that was the only place in my head that I was going to if I could get in. And my parents used that. And they said, well, you can guarantee your entrance into film school if you get great grades because they can't say no to someone who gets straight A's. So (laughs) I wasn't the smartest guy but I knew how to get A's. Uh, I knew just the amount of stuff I needed to study to swindle the teacher to give me an A. So basically I I used that to get in. And then when, when it was there, you know, there's organizations and stuff that help you just inch along the way. But my instinct was always, 
be the best filmmaker you can. Don't be the best Asian filmmaker yeah. you can. And there was a difference that I didn't understand until more recently of the Asian American experience versus Asians experience from other places. Like there was a reason why Chinese specific movies, why I enjoyed them, didn't speak to me on the most personal level. There's a reason why Spielberg spoke to me more or Tim Burton spoke to me more. And why are they so important to you? Like what is about them as film directors mm -hmm. that influence you so much? I think when I watched them as a kid, it made me dream. Even when I watched Michael Jackson music videos, it made me dream of this world and this place that I wasn't good with words. When words aren't enough, music, dance, spectacle can take you to another place. And sharing that with a community of people in the dark and then sharing about it after, eating and talking about it after, and then going home, getting the toys, and then playing with it and creating your own stories, that process for me, going to the toy store, getting all that stuff, gave me a place to like talk and I don't know, I was the youngest of five, so I was constantly talked over. I had to grab food really quickly if I wanted to make sure I ate. And so I think this allowed me to speak and be heard in a way. And I think those movies, E.T., Edward Scissorhands, I don't know, they spoke to me right directly into who I was, it felt like. I love Spielberg because I think what gets lost in his success is the level of difficulty of projects he's chosen. Yeah. Everything, I think, particularly like in restaurants, you put on Chef White's in any kitchen, whether it's a hamburger shop to three Michelin star dining, that's hard. Yeah. And when you decide to do something that you know is going to appease or challenge a small group of audience, I'm thinking like an indie film. Yeah. It's difficult, but like you know your audience. Yeah. And I just, I always gravitate towards like the hardest, most difficult challenges. And what I've always admired about you is you're taking on things that have to be commercial. And I think in this day and age, oftentimes commercial seems like, oh, it's not as hard. Mm -hmm. It's fucking the hardest. It's so hard. Because <laughs> you're trying to reach everyone at some point. Yeah. And when you think of all the Spielberg films, that's exactly the kind of food I want to make as well. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it is. I don't want, I, I admire all the great directors, Kubrick, blah, blah, blah. But I want to make people happy just like you want to make as many people happy to watch a film. And what led you to be like, I want to do that. I want to make as many people enjoy my films as possible, not just a small group. Yeah. I think it's the way I grew up. I think it's watching my parents do it. They welcomed everybody into their kitchen. They were, you know, in 1969, one of the first Chinese restaurants in that area, and they had to adjust food to make it accessible. And I think they got some shit for that. And at the same time, they knew exactly who, who they shit? were. Uh, there were both Asian people and white people who would say it's not Asian enough or it's not mainstream. And, uh, both sides, I think, they felt that. And they knew the food that they were making. It was for their constituents there. And they were making food that would speak to the community. And I think over time, you get beat up so much, but then you you realize who you are and you stick to that. And I, watching that, people of all walks of life, of all ages, little kids to people in wheelchairs, People who are in hospitals get brought over to the restaurant to eat. Politicians, all these people only made me stronger in that, yeah, you can speak your story, your specific story to many, many people and they can all relate because at the very base of it all, we are all humans. Same. And I think that that's what his movies, Spielberg's movies do. I think he also, in the beginning, he was shat on as being like, oh, too commercial. Too, oh, he created the blockbuster. But you know what? Of all those people, of all those directors at the time, Brian De Palma, and all, who are great directors, he keeps pushing it. He keeps making movies that are experimental. And, and yes, of course, they're, they're mainstream, but like he's pushing himself at whatever age he's at, which is not young anymore, 
I love that, that he is owning his craft. That is the love and example in itself. He's constantly taking chances of new genres that he hasn't done before as the master of the whole medium. And right. I, I just think that's like so admirable. USC, what's your first project after graduating? Or probably you were working on stuff during school too. Yeah, I did a short film during school called When the Kids Are Away. You can't see it online. I think there's like a trailer or something. But that short film is Spielberg discovered me. He's the one who saw that. On It was before pre-YouTube, pre-internet like video stuff. It was on a VHS tape. And uh, somehow, some way, it got to him and he saw it. And uh, when he calls you and he buys a project from you. Did you, you know he was going to call you? Did someone give you a heads up? My agent called me at that time. So my agent had seen the, saw the short, the rough version of the short before. And well, he wasn't my agent at that time, then became my agent. And then it somehow got to, and there's like five people who claim they got it to Spielberg at the time, <laughs> which will happen. But yeah, so he told me, hey, Spielberg called, we're not sure, or his people called, we're not sure what's going on, da, da, da. This was on a Friday. He's like, but who knows if it's going to be a deal or not, just don't think about it. Of course, I thought about it all weekend. So I got the call on like Saturday night. And um, so we met up on Monday at DreamWorks and we had like a two-hour conversation about musicals, about movies. He was just so kind to me. I just saw him at Saturday Night Live this weekend hmm. and he's still so kind. And I just love that about him. And so once he does that, of course, the whole surreal. industry- Surreal, it's gotta be so surreal. So crazy. The whole industry was like, who is this 22-year-old kid? And then they start offering you all these things. So I got all these movies that I was attached to but I didn't make my first movie until five years later. Wow. So year two into developing all these movies and none of them are, this is called development hell, which I got firsthand. You feel like, oh, is this slipping away? Year three, you're like, oh shit, no, it's, did I just miss my chance? Year four, you're like, I am fucked. I'm out of money now. I was discovered by Spielberg. What am I going to do? And year five, you're done. You're like, I don't know. I don't know how to maintain any, what I got to go work somewhere else now. And at that point, my manager said, I said, what do I, I need to prove myself. What, are, what is there? Like, well, there's this direct to DVD. What was, what was causing the hardship to prevent you from getting there in development? Health? It's LA, Hollywood. You got to have a movie to make a movie. I got in at such a high level that these movies weren't tiny movies. These were like 50, $80 million movies, but I didn't have a feature for them to feel 100% for sure. But they were like 70% for sure. And it's 70% for sure enough to greenlight a movie like that. It's just, you're going back and forth. It's always, we're going to make it in six months. We're going to make it in six months. And they keep paying you. So you're, you're staying just above the water. But no, it was, it was, those were hard times. And, and because YouTube was just starting on this, and I, my whole life I've been making stuff. Every week I would make stuff. These five-year period, I was like, no, I'm a professional. I'm about to make my movie. I, I can't make a little video right now. And that was the death of my like creative soul during that time. I realized it's the longest span of time I haven't made something with video or film and it killed me. By year five, I was just, I didn't have that fire. But you were learning the business. But I was learning the business. I learned how to work with writers. <laughs> I learned with studios. I learned what it felt like to have said no to many, many times and know when you're down who to trust and who's going to be there right by your side. I always find that fascinating, and I do think that there's some correlation with people that have been successful in their fields is there's always a period where they were not destined to be successful, <laughs> right? They yeah. were like in the desert, thirsty. Yeah. And it really centers you in a way. Like you, mm -hmm. My girlfriend left me at the time. Oh, man. I just had my dog. This is I'm like the story of Job. <laughs> That's tough, man. Yeah. 
And I bought this condo. So this condo was getting more and more empty. Nothing in the fridge. It was... Dark times. Dark times. I did not want to tell my parents. I didn't want to tell anybody. And then what led you to be like, fuck it? My manager said, there's this one project. It's direct-to-DVD only of a dance movie sequel. And I was like, no, I don't do direct-to-DVD. I got discovered by Spielberg. And then my, I called my mom, told her this story. And she's like, when did you become a snob? You have never made anything feature. Like, direct DVD is the same form. It's just a story. You're a storyteller. You could tell a story around a fire. You should be able to tell a story around a fire and engage people. If you can't do that, then what are you trying to do? I was like, yeah, right. I'm going to make the best damn directed DVD dance movie sequel of all time. So I took the script. I broke it down, went into that pitch, said, throw this script away. This is how I would do it. They hired me. Two weeks later, Disney called because they had distributed the first one theatrically. They weren't a part of the second one. They said, oh, John's involved. Let's, we want to hear that pitch. So I pitched it to them. And Orna Aviv there, who's the head of Disney, said, we want to do this. Well, your little movie, we're going to release it theatrically, but you have to be done in, in nine months. So uh, that's what we did. We didn't have a script. We didn't have, we had an outline. And so from then, my movie was out nine months later and made $159 million. So I had a $20 million crazy. budget. It was, uh, it was a crazy, and that got me, that was 10 years ago. And I've made eight movies in those 10 years. So. And that first time, did you learn something about having your back against the wall? And at least again, for me, when I, and I constantly put myself in those situations because when I get comfortable or when I have my egos too big, I'm just not the best version of myself. Absolutely. Those are the best times in terms when of- When you have no choice, but you have to create. Yeah. Like last night I was in the kitchen at Major Domo and that was the, I was trying to explain to someone who was working on a dish and, and I kept on waiting and waiting and we were actually developing during service. Mm. And she, she was freaking <laughs> out because she's like, we got to, and I was like, now we have no choice. Yep. It's on the menu. We got to make this work. Yeah. And it's a crappy way to actually do it, but I feel like one of the benefits of it, at least on the culinary end, is you don't have time to worry about yourself, mm -hmm. right? Because we, I think anything creative is like can be a narcissistic endeavor. It has Absolutely. to be. And then at some point when you can kill your ego a little bit, then you're just like, fuck it. I'm just going to do the best quality I can possibly do. Yeah. You go back to your instincts of how you started, really. And that's what happened. And that's a massive success. Holy hell. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, there was one time, we're, so we're writing the script I have to hand it into Disney on a Sunday. This is when we're actually now writing the script. Friday night, I get this official script from the writer. And I'm like, this is not going to go. Um, we're screwed. So I'm like, I gotta, we got to rewrite a lot of this stuff from Friday to Saturday before Sunday we turn it in. So I brought the writer in. I was like, you take this section. I take this section. And we wrote in an office for like 36 hours straight. On midnight on Saturday, the computer crashes. Oh, man. And it's one of those crashes that... Uh, it's also a time where things just didn't automatically be back up. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I think I did an, a backup like 15 minutes ago. We're fine. Like We'll go 15 minutes back. I open that computer and it will not turn on. I call every emergency hard drive company and they're like, that is going to cost thousands of dollars. I'm like, fine. I don't care. Like, we got to get this thing. Oh, it's going to take two weeks. No guarantee. I was like, I got to turn this in tomorrow. So I remember at two in the morning on that Saturday night or morning, Sunday morning, thinking this is the moment, John. Make or break moment. You're either not turning in something or you're turning in something that's going to get said no to or you're going to write this shit in the next nine hours. I was sweating things from my skin that was like oil. I don't even know what it was. I'll never forget it. And I drank two Red Bulls and uh, said, let's go. 
I always like to think of my life in a story because it helps me during those times. Like, okay, this is chapter eight when all the shit goes down <laughs> and I've got to like rise above it. When you think of your life in that way, that you're beyond what's happening right there, it, it does help in certain situations. So this one, I, I did it. And I was like, I can't wait to tell this story one day when I look back and said, I wrote, we wrote that script in that night in those nine hours at the highest pressures. And we turned it in and he greenlit the movie on that Tuesday. That to me would be a great story. So then let's fulfill that story and you go. There's nothing to fall back on. You're just, in a way, it's kind of better because you're not overthinking it. I always like think about it in this like concept from the Scottish guy that did like a Himalayan expedition. I can't remember his name, mm -hmm. Walter Murray or something. And basically to paraphrase, he said, there's no turning back when you buy the ticket. You Once you purchase the ticket, there's no going back. <laughs> yes. You have to be committed. And it's amazing. That gives me goosebumps just thinking about that moment because that's so easy to just quit. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Totally. And what happened after that? <laughs> yeah. What happened after the you, success of, which step up was it? That was step up to the streets. <laughs> I came up with to the streets. Yeah. So after that, we were actually, it was interesting because I was going to go do another movie, but I got preempted because I, when you do your first movie, they basically are like, we have the right to do your second movie for this set price or whatever. And they can, uh, preempt any other deal. The lock you, you in to save money. The lock you in, exactly. But they're giving you a first shot so you understand, at least in your first movie. So I was going to do another movie and then Disney was like, no, no, you're doing step up, another step up movie because he made so much money. So I loved all my dancers and at that point, YouTube was around. So I started doing these YouTube videos just because I realized I got to keep making stuff. Even when I'm not making a big movie, there's no excuses anymore. I have a camera, we have a distribution center of YouTube that we can get out. If you're a maker, you make. You got to make. So I started just making stuff. And we had this whole thing with Miley Cyrus where we challenged her to a dance battle and it became this online crazy thing. It was in every magazine and news thing. So from these, I met all these dancers and I wanted to show off more dancers and more different street styles specifically that weren't, I couldn't have known when writing a version of a script before knowing the mm -hmm. dance community. Now I knew the dance community. So we went back to Step Up 3D, actually. It's it actually a funny story because after the success of the first one, um, the head of Disney called me and said, hey, what can we do for you? What can we do? Like, what can we do? I was like, at that time, Captain EO was in lockdown. They had not shown it at the park again. It was like since 1980, whatever, because there was some legal battle over it with Lucasfilms. So at that time, I was like, hey, my dancers, who I know, have never seen Captain EO. And can you explain I, what Captain EO is Captain, to the audience? Captain EO was a 3D Michael Jackson video, basically, so, shown at Disneyland. I remember watching I love it. it so many times. It's so good and crazy. It's like this, I don't know, it's like Star Wars with dance. But it had been locked in the cell, so I, we couldn't get it. So I was like, I want to watch it again because I don't remember what it is. And I want to bring my dancers because I think they would love it. And so they're like, I got to check with legal because we can't really show up. But let me see. The next day he calls like, come to the Imagineering place and bring bring all your friends. So we went there and it was catered. We went to, basically it was like a junkyard for all the old Disney stuff. So you're walking in, all the dancers, there's like 30 of us, parked cars. We walk in and there's all these different rides that have been broken down or old. And we walk into this big warehouse and they have a projector because it's on film, 3D film. And this old man on the projector like gets the things on the reels. It's like, welcome, there's catering, folding chairs. We have the purple 3D glasses. <laughs> and we all sit down and he like reels it up and we watch it. It's like 15 minutes. And um, they were like so in awe of it. And some of their parents were in the short. Wow. Uh, 
And so it was the most beautiful, wonderful time. And I knew, I was like, okay, let's do a movie, Step Up 3D. Let's do it in 3D. And that was the big, after I seeing that, gave me the inspiration. Like, let's just make the third one in 3D and go have fun. Wow. So that franchise, you sort of re-energize, make Disney Mm -hmm. a ton of money. And they keep making more and more movies after that. I don't even know what number they are (laughs) at this point. And then Justin Bieber called, or Scooter Braun there. And so I, all my movies are very (laughs) different from each other. I did a documentary for him called Never Say Never. After that, I did a action, my first action movie, a big G.I. Uh, Joe, right? G.I. Joe with That's when we met. You were about yeah. to go into filming for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With The Rock, Bruce Willis, Channing. And then uh, after that, Now You See Me 2 with all these great actors. Amazing time to do that with magicians. I'd never done a heist movie before, so that was fun. I did a little $5 million movie called Gem and the Holograms, which bombed, but I still love the movie. I, I Can I just <laughs> say like, I love Jim and the Holograms, the cartoon, yes. growing up as a kid. Yes. <laughs> what a That's crazy awesome. premise. That's right? amazing. <laughs> it is insane, actually. Go back and watch again. <laughs> You'll be even more amazed how insane it is. But inspired a whole generation of men and women watching that. So we wanted to take a shot at reinventing it. I guess we took the wrong shot because nobody No, liked but, it, but. I, <laughs> you, you took the shot, though. Exactly. And— that's what gets sort of lost is like doing stuff that's outside your comfort zone. That's the thing, actually, my biggest lesson from that, that was three years ago, like now, was I didn't want the fear to ruin, because fear is like the worst thing for creativity, the worst thing for creation. So I didn't want that trigger fear to affect my decisions from then on. So I purposely wanted to choose something that was scary. I made a, I had to make a speech the morning of Saturday after the movie came out on a Friday. And I, at Friday night, we realized this was going to be the lowest opening of any widespread movie ever. Uh, so I made this speech, and it was a very depressing speech. And it's supposed to be to these young, young writers and directors, future writers and directors. And instead, I'm like, I just had the biggest bomb of my life. But I have to reassess why I do this. I can't do this for the success of a box office. And I can't do this actually for success of reviews fuck those things. Like I have to ha- find a place where I'm making this stuff to express something. And maybe it's sh- people share that expression and maybe they don't, but I cannot be hung up on the result of what I'm doing. I have to stay focused on actually just what I'm doing and then move forward. And so that step was the literally the f- day one of Crazy Rich Asians. That's when I went on the search. When you were doing Gem and in the filming of it, where you're like, when you have done films that have been successful you don't know. Like you no. just said, you don't know that it carries their changes and not we're going to be successful. When you're filming gems, do you have any inclination? Like this might not work. No. Even to this day, I think we framed it wrong in terms of presenting it to the public at first. Because I still think, I am very proud of the movie. Uh, it's not a perfect movie. None of my movies are perfect, but I, I'm proud of what it is. And uh, proud of the message. And I think it's an empowering movie. And I'm proud of what we used as the, the social media part of it, where we, we use people's videos that they sent in as part of the storytelling. Super proud of those things. But no, I thought it was going to be like a huge breakout <laughs> the whole time, which is why on Crazy Rich, I was like, I really had to temper my emotions and be like, it doesn't matter what it does. We did it. And that is that. Let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Stamps.com. 
These days, you can practically get everything on demand. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk, 24-7, when it's convenient for you. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package you're using, your computer, printer, whatever, and the mail carrier picks it up. Just click print mail and you're done. It couldn't be easier. Right now, use Chang for this special offer. Includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Chang. That's C-H-A-N-G. That's stamps.com. Enter Chang. And now, back to the show. You had that five-year stretch. I feel like there's a lot of similarities that I can at least relate to of doing things out of your comfort zone and getting to a point. Everything seems to be cyclical, like you said, when you can connect the dots and sort of frame it like it's your it's a movie or yes. something. It's hard to remember that if you don't fail big sometimes, you're never actually going to get better. Totally. And that's the shittiest advice to give. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But that's true. You got to fail as many times, especially when you're starting, you got to fail as many times as quickly as possible because then you get over all the stories that everyone's already told. You get over all the cliches that you've already, that you for somehow are programmed in your head and you can move on. But it's sort of cyclical again because you got discovered by Spielberg and then for lack of a better term, like you wanted to do things a certain way that you thought you needed to do it until you had some humility from your mom. You're like, shit, I just got to make the best movie possible. And, you, and it's just like you would go back up, go back up try to swing for the fences and then it sort of resets you again. Absolutely. And it definitely happened with me. You know, Nishi was a fucking bomb of bombs Mm -hmm. and I got, I tied like so much of my self-esteem to this and it's made me more empathetic to people that don't get the recognition that they wanted, Mm -hmm. like especially during reviews because Man, it is a lonely fucking feeling. Yes. And you let everyone down, not only yourself. Such a public, like not everybody has such a public job as we do. And your family is tied to it. Your friends are tied to it. Your being is tied to this. Like for least, I tied so much to it. And it was easily one of the low points in my life professionally and brought me way back down. And it took a long time to get it right again. And it's just so good right now. Different team. And I've taken a lot of my stupidity out of it. Don't need to go down that road again. But I realized something like, as you said, is I needed to create again. And for a five-year stretch, I wasn't really creating anything. I was so busy trying to like be business. Because yeah. that's what I thought I had to be because everyone was telling me to do that. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't have the outlet to do the things. And I didn't realize that having some form of expression, particularly through fruit, is important for me and like stability. And even if it's a failure, um, because that's what cooking is, you're failing all the time to get to it. And uh, that period was super important for me because it made me realize what I need to do again. And Mm. partly was, is sort of destroying myself, my ego, what I thought needed to happen and led me to the period where I am right now, because there was a point where I was like, this is never going to get any better. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine it getting better because this is as worst as it can possibly get. But now I look back at it as, shit, man, I got an awful dose of medicine. Doesn't Mm -hmm. taste good, but I'm in a better place for it. So now I can look back at that, like many of my other failures and struggles, and almost look fondly at Mm -hmm. it. Do you remember the moment where you made a decision to shift? It didn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. It didn't. I just knew that... 
no one's going to feel sorry for yourself again. Mm-hmm. No one. Mm-hmm. And I have to, it was really basically changing my viewpoint of how I structured myself, right? And also simultaneously listening to my gut more mm. and not listening to other people. <laughs> and I, it was more just getting to how I felt things should be when I was trying. And I think the goal is to be a better group and organization. So it was me learning how to manage and most importantly, making decisions outside my comfort zone. I'm the mm. person that will suck when I have to do something that is comfortable, that is expected. Mm. And I'm going to work way better when I, I have no choice. That's exactly the same how I feel. And I hate that about myself. Yeah. I, I wish I could be that, that student that's like, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? Like, oh, I'm working on the test that's like six months out. Like, I can't do that shit. Mm-hmm. So whenever I talk to someone that's creative, particularly someone like you that's doing it, I see the your trajectory and it's like, oh, I can imagine what you were going through at this point. Mm-hmm. And when you say that day when you were filming Gem or after post-production, you're like, that was the day that we started to put together Crazy Rich Asians. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it makes me so excited to hear that, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. when people always talk about how to get to your goals, no one ever talks about after you get to where you wanted to be. Totally. Right? Totally. It's never just a, a linear journey. It's ups and downs, ups yeah. and downs. And if you're lucky, if you're in this business long enough, you should have multiple big failures so that you're constantly building. If you are out of the business by a certain time, then you won't, you only have that one failure. But right. so in a way, I'm like, Let's go. There's going to be many of those times in the future. I'm going to look back on this podcast and be like, oh, how quaint. He thought there was only that <laughs> one five-year period. Wait until the 10-year yeah. period, motherfucker. Whatever that may be. Like, I mean, I, how, do you, how do you preach that to someone? Everyone's <laughs> like, oh, you're going to be great. You're going to do this. It's like you almost have to train yourself to not think about what's good. But like, man, like you better celebrate that time you're going to fuck it up. Exactly. And it's going to happen multiple times. <laughs> they always say like your agent— any agent can get you a job when you're hot, but it's it's who's going to stick by you when you are not is like the person to be with. That's when you actually need an agent. I mean, I'm a very positive thinking person in terms of I have goals and things I'm I'm chasing and and but at the same time with that I know that when those hard times come, I try the best possible way to frame it in the bigger. You know, Bruce Lee said like don't focus on my finger when I'm pointing to the moon. <laughs> like you're missing the beauty and amazingness of the moon. Right. I'm just a finger pointing to it, but like that's our direction. And so I try to uh, try to think about that. And when you are um, changing and doing all these new things, and, and, and I speak to a lot of cooks that are trying to open up restaurants or creatives, it's so hard to tell them that if you want to grow, right? Like you have to fail, right? Yeah. Like it's not, really compelling to me to try to do the same thing over and over and over again. Totally. And that's what you got to fight. Most people want you to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. You could have. That's what they want, for sure. You could make step up 16 by now. <laughs> yes. And call a day, I'm retired, <laughs> I'm tons and tons but of what money. they don't know is that they actually don't want that. <laughs> the reason they like step up two and whatever is because it was new. It was like something refreshing that they needed to feel or express or whatever it was and they saw it reflected back right. to them. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a very interesting uh, idea in that. Um, I did a podcast with Isaac, the producer, about uh, Crazy Rich Asians. And especially for Asian-American artistry that's not been sort of mainstream, it had so much pressure. And I'm someone that should have wanted to love this from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And I knew you, and I knew Constance, and I knew people, even Steve. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't embrace it. Mm-hmm. 
in a positive way. And I don't know what that says about myself, which is pretty easy to see, <laughs> but I was like, fuck, like, I don't like how it's being championed as this thing mm -hmm. and how, not that I wanted to be successful. I was really concerned of how it was going to be perceived by not just Asian people, but by the world at large that is outside of that community. For sure. And I was like, shit, it got me really irritated when people say, this is our Black Panther. I was like, don't say that. Yeah. Don't fucking say that mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's not, mm -hmm. it's totally different. And I was so apprehensive and privately, I wanted it to obviously be the most successful movie of all time, mm -hmm. but I was so on edge as to how it was going to do yep. that. The only way that I could sort of prepare myself for it was to expect the worst. Mm -hmm. And I tell you this because when I finally got to see it, I, I, I didn't get to see it opening day and I got invites to go to a lot of the openings <laughs> yeah. and stuff. And I just was like, ah. Oh, this feels like too Asian inclusion. I don't want that because yep. you put me in a room more than five Asian, I, I get like sweaty. <laughs> and when I finally did get to see it, I was blown away. I genuinely was, I guess you could probably say it as a hater, but I wasn't hating it. I just was trying to protect it, totally. to lower expectations. Absolutely. And when I saw it, I was like, fuck, number one, this is a great movie. Is it flawless? No, it's not trying to be because... If you unpack all the fucking issues you guys are trying to tackle, it's yeah. it should be, you know, two year miniseries. <laughs> it's true, it's true. <laughs> right? Don't worry, all the movies are coming. <laughs> but uh, I was so fucking thrilled at the complexity, yet the complexity done in a really simple romantic comedy. You packed a ton of stuff in mm -hmm, there, mm -hmm. and I couldn't be more proud. And everyone was, everyone I knew was saying like, "You're an idiot, Dave. <laughs> You're an idiot. Wait till you watch it." And I wanted to know everything about it. And I, I was sort of blown away. Yes, you could say like, and I heard a lot of criticism. Yep. It's not representative of all Asians. Not Most Asians aren't rich. <laughs> all right. All these things. And I think at the end of the day, what people are trying, at least what I failed to realize, was this is a step to getting to that goal. Totally. And you can't do everything in one movie. It's just a movie. It's just a movie. Yeah. And when I just saw it for just a movie let alone the skin color of people on the film. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is just a great movie and it's entertaining and there's a lot of great messages in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I commend you for making what was easily an incredibly impossible endeavor. <laughs> Thank you. you Thank know? you. And what I, I appreciate your honesty because I think a lot of people were feeling that. I probably would have felt it if I was on the outside, for sure, not being involved in the movie. And what I realized is, because I've processed this a lot, like, what happened to the people who didn't want to support it first? And why is that? And should I be angry at them? What is my emotion to that? What I realized, it is not their fault. This is the exact reflection of the scars that have been done through all these years of like Hollywood fucking it up so many times that if someone punches you in the stomach over and over again, when someone tries to give you a five, of course you're going to punch the person in the stomach because you've been burned so many times. And I, I have felt that so many times, and especially the expectations of like, oh shit, we're setting this up so high just so that if, even if it's, if it's not a phenomenon, if it's just does well, it's not a success. And people are going to be like, that's the bar for Asian things. I didn't want that on our movie. The whole time of this movie, I was worried about that kind of stuff. So I was having literally the same emotional battle as you, except I was like in the shit. And in it, I had to, like you said, just focus on making a good movie and ignoring all that stuff and just stay focused on. But I think the cast is the key. Knowing these people I look up to, Ronnie from The Daily Show, Jimmy from Silicon Valley, 
Constance from Fresh Off the Boat, Michelle Yeoh from all of the things she's done, Ken, all these all these people that I knew were super talented, and to and Gemma to put in one movie, Aquafina, I knew we we had the the slice of Asian talent that were not being shown to the world that we all knew were amazingly talented. So I knew at the very least I had to lean on them. And when when you talk about being proud, I realize now I never understood the word proud. Like I could say, oh, of course I'm proud to be Asian. Of course I'm proud. I grew up in a Chinese restaurant. But when I see them on that big screen, and when I see people bringing their moms and grandparents and dads, people who haven't gone in the theater in 10, 15 years, and we're watching and I'm seeing how confident there's this energy of confidence from Aquafina, from all these people that permeates through the screen and made me feel so proud to them to represent our story in a weird, and it's not, again, not everybody's story, no, but this did, particular story. And you story. did it, and you did it, and it's clear to me how much you poured yourself into this and the entire cast and production crew. And uh, you caught all these things right too that were small. And I'll, I'll remember I was watching the uh, Trevor Noah interview, Ryan Coogler, yeah. and they were talking about, and I would never have picked this up, but Trevor was like, how each character in Black Panther had their own like patois and their accent representative of all of Africa. Mm. And even though this takes place in Singapore, how each of his cousins represented like Hong Kong, Malaysia, mainland China, Shanghai. I was like, knowing all of these people that are in there, I was like, oh, he sort of nailed how each one, if you're going to stereotype someone from that yeah. social caste would act, yeah. it was like perfect. Yeah, yeah. And then I think some people could say, oh, that's just like a typecast. But I was like, we have to start from somewhere. And by the way, the fact that because it's an all Asian cast, now we can make fun of ourselves exactly. on our terms. When someone else makes fun of our people, they have a different perspective of an outside perspective and they pick up on things that are not funny. But when we do it, we can find the things that are funny with our family members, with our cousins, with our friends. And the difference of having both diversity in front of the camera and behind the camera, that's what allows that. That we can then... Make fun of the things that we should be making fun of. And also, because we have all these characters, show the depth of who we are. And that an Asian American is not necessarily accepted in parts of the world where there's all Asians. And and vice versa. And that our cultures are different. Languages are different. And I, there's a point where I didn't even want to have, like, subtitles. I just wanted them to speak. And then if people who could understand it could understand it. People who didn't, like, they'll figure it out. But I didn't win that battle. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just thought, like, again, each of these characters were so perfect for how they played. Like, Ronnie Chang's character, like, he's <laughs> a Hong Kong finance guy. Yeah. Like, if you get to know these people, that's him, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's funny. for real. Yeah. Like, the yeah. photo, like, I pissed my pants because, like, that. I know people exactly <laughs> yeah, like this. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, I could go on and on about that. Yes. Um, yes. What I really thought was interesting for me, because I had a conversation with some of my, my friends that are not Asian. And we were discussing the film was how Michelle Yeoh's character was seen and the grandmother were seen as villainous. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they were? No. No. Uh, maybe the grandma was more villainous than, because we didn't have as much character stuff to her as Eleanor, as Michelle Yeoh's character. But Michelle was very specific in the beginning before she boarded this project was, I will not play a villain. I refuse to play a villain. I need to explain the culture as clearly as I can. Otherwise, I won't be able to go home. So the point in the dumpling scene where grandma like shits on her dumplings and shows this dynamic that not even she is accepted, that it's a class thing uh, as well, uh, was really important to shift 
there are two very different ideas of how to live your life. Sacrifice for your family and live your life for your own But that happiness. that was at the heart of it. Yes. And that's why Isaac and I did this podcast because the last thing I wanted someone that doesn't understand sort of Confucian culture is to see that the grandmother and the mother were being bad guys. Yeah. It's relative, particularly to culture, but I saw that as sacrifice and familial duty, which is sort of what the movie is talking about too. It's like, you spend too much time in America. You don't understand the values anymore. Yeah. It may seem wrong to a like American Western value mm-hmm. system, like, oh, they're 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 limiting, they're hurting our son, they're ruining the life of of Constance. I can't remember the name because I know these people. It's yeah. hard to tell me the, the, the movie characters' names, but and I got in a long discussion about that. I was like, they were doing their job. Mm-hmm. And their number one thing in different terms of value was family first. Mm-hmm. And when you have someone that's basically like the Rockefellers mm-hmm. of these countries, that's a whole different pressure. And Nick's fr- best friend, his best man. Yep. The, yep. Oh, Colin. Yeah, yep. Colin. Mm-hmm. When he, they were on the island, when they yes. left the party, and he was explaining to him the, the implications that Constance, what's Constance's name? Uh, Rachel. Rachel, Rachel shit. It's okay. Nobody remembers character. <laughs> Rachel was going to have in dating someone like Nick. Nick yep. didn't have to worry about anything because he was just yep. royalty, but she would have to. Like, you had packed in so many different points of empathy that I don't think many people were picking up on. And I thought that was the best part to me. It was like a real friendship talk, a real good friend telling him like, bro, you are not seeing it from her angle. And that was so powerful for me to see. And one of my close friends is essentially a crazy rich Asian Mm -hmm. who lives Mm -hmm. in America. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure some of the stories are probably about his family. Um, Yeah. And he can't watch it. And I mean, it's a composite, I'm sure, of a yes, lot of different yes. ones. And I know that he has not been able to have certain relationships because it hasn't passed the snuff of the family test. Yeah. And when I first heard these stories, I, myself, knowing Asian values, was like, that's not right. That's not cool. Mm-hmm. Until I got to know the family more. And, of course, the mother and the father want him to have love. But it's so hard to explain to anyone that's not in their position, particularly of like Asian values, that family is more important than an individual. Totally, totally. And that story to me, what you said with Eleanor and Rachel and Nick, I was sort of like completely moved by that because Mm. here in this rom-com genre, are you talking about something that is so fucking complex? Yes, yes. And I I just thought that was unbelievable. And it was a real highlight for me to watch because I was like, whenever I ever— seen this thank you talked about that wasn't like a documentary some boring academic book Mm -hmm. so we talked about that a lot in the creation of the script the most important scene that we added late in the game but to express that emotion exactly was the dumpling scene it used to be a dinner where he comes back from the trip and rachel comes back and mom announces that he's taking over the company and it was all this stuff and we're like i don't care about that stuff she hands him this company what do they even do like we're talking about a business now, not about family and why this is bigger than just, oh, you're not good enough for my son. This is about protecting this family. And so this dinner scene was to show, one, that their family actually loves each other. There's no scene before that where you actually see them as a real family, laughing, joking about pastimes, um, doing something together without like showing off to anybody. Making dumplings was uh, something I did as a kid as well. But But they could, to show that family, that Rachel, who's, um, only child from a single mother doesn't have that would set this bar so high that she would say, wow, look at all this love. 
look at how much mom loves Nick. That is an amazing. And then for mom then to say, you don't understand to build things that last. And we do. You don't understand, like, this doesn't just happen. I've had to do a lot of things to protect this family to make sure that we can all eat together and be together and and protect this love. There's a scene where Nick is getting dressed and putting on a new shirt with his mom. And at the end, he's like, how do I look? And she gives this, it's the most brilliant performance for Michelle. She looks at him and the line is perfect. Literally the word perfect. She takes this long pause before she says it. And you see her heart break and says perfect. Like he's leaving the nest, which is like her saddest moment is for any mom, for any family to understand that. And I just think you understand her on another level just by one word because of her performance. And at the dumpling scenes, you understand it even more so that this is the dilemma, not a business, not your class, not your blah, blah, blah. It's your values as an American of just protecting yourself or whatever they may be presented as doesn't fit. That won't protect this. Mm. And then the fact at the end that Rachel sacrifices her own love and says, he's either going to be with you or he's going to be with me. And I don't want him to lose his mom again because I love him that much. Mm. And she folds her mahjong chip that she could have won with. Can you explain that story? Because I don't understand mahjong. And I was expecting her like slam the table being like. (laughs) Which was the expected thing to do. But yeah, so she's playing and ultimately she has, when she's talking to her, she gets the tile that would allow her to win when she's talking about sacrifice. Instead, she puts it down knowing that Eleanor will win with that chip. So she puts it down and then Eleanor takes it and wins. But what Eleanor doesn't know is Rachel would have won. And so it's another example. It's a powerful scene. It's a, it's a, and whether you know Mahjong or not, we didn't want to over, we didn't want to have to have a whole explanation. And that's why about it's it. so great, I okay. think. There's just, there's no like, oh, I need to know Mahjong. It's just like, you know, it's a very symbolic gesture. Like mm-hmm. she, she knows how to sacrifice. She's yeah. not an idiot. And I think that's the main thing is like this new generation, we're a generation that you can cast one light on us as much as you want. And maybe there are things we need to learn mm. about sacrifice, about the group the opposite of what we were taught necessarily growing up. But we are capable and we actually have the opportunity to remix the cultures that we all know in a way that is for the future, that we are going to be defining. Our immigrant families brought the bags on their backs and on their hands with the memories they wanted to bring to America. And here we now are carrying something forward. So what are we going to put in our bags to carry forward? And that this is an opportunity to form it in the way we want it. I had a daughter while we were making this movie and so I was thinking about that a lot. What do I want my, this next generation to feel and to know? And to love themselves was one part of it, but also to love the family and, and understand that that is a part of your existence, um, especially now having a baby. We don't, I don't have a lot of family here. They're all in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. I miss that a lot. Well, I just, again, I didn't expect to fucking cry in your movie. I definitely <laughs> did. Uh, it was... Um, I love being. I wouldn't wrong. expect you to cry. No, I did. I was <laughs> I was moved by it because at the end it was like that's like you don't see this shit. Mm-hmm. You just don't see it in a Hollywood movie. Mm-hmm. And I once I understood the significance of it, actually watching, I was like, "Fuck, this is this is momentous. Mm-hmm. This is a massive achievement." So again, like that's we why I really want to talk to you. That's why behind the camera, in front of the camera, having someone like Michelle, having someone like Constance, we were having these debates on set while we're shooting the movie. That was so powerful to be able to say, oh, we're shooting the movie right now. What do we want to say to our audience right now? Go ahead and say it. What do you want to say to defend how American, Asian American kids feel? Say it, do it. 
Like, this is it. We don't have to talk about it, debate about it, write it in a script, put it in, then go through the fucking studio, and then have, say it. Right. And that was one of the most powerful moments where they got to say what they wanted to say. Uh, I know you got to get out of here. Um, really thank you for coming on. But before I let you go, I want to talk quickly about your dad and <laughs> and the restaurant. What's yes. the name of the restaurant? It's called Chef Choose, and it's in uh, Los Altos, which is next to Stanford. Been there for 50 years next year, which Amazing. is pretty crazy. But he never let us work in the restaurant. Although I had to help out on like art festivals and things, working the thing. But um, yeah, I grew up going there every, that's what my dad was there every single day, seven days a week. I think they were closed for like three days of the year. I would walk from school to the restaurant to do my homework or fold napkins or whatever. So it was always a part. All my cars smell like Chinese food. All our clothes smell like Chinese food. I'm the youngest of five, so they all... Nobody ever worked in the restaurant. Now they're all in the restaurant. But are they all? Yeah, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're all. They all help out in some way. My oldest brother is helping my dad sort of take over. But my dad is there is still the king of the place. But it's why I wanted to introduce Eleanor in the kitchen, um, in the movie. And the book is not written like that. But I I remember watching both my mom and my dad in the kitchen, being boss and, in the and kitchen, being the boss yeah. in the yeah, and uh, to be commander in chief in like a pirate ship essentially. And when chefs try to take advantage and leave or quit or whatever, my dad can get in there and cook better than any of them. So I, that idea of power and control, and then when, as soon as he walks out, he's like the friendliest, welcoming, warm person and always just selling and, and being your friend. Like I loved that dynamic. And so to show that, so that, and that's the environment. Cooking is very similar to directing. You know, there is this image of a chef and a restaurant owner of jovial and being the ultimate host, but like the work that goes into it to be there at 5 a.m. to debone the chicken or do whatever, like that's real work. And my dad draws a lot of his dishes before he actually, or at least for catering stuff, especially he draws a lot of, but, but um, he'll draw his dishes. I have paper napkins of all his little drawings. And so it was this art that we were always around. So it was amazing. Great. And, um, uh there was no way he'd ever want you to be in the profession, right? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, he was like, I want you all to have a restaurant. I want five restaurants all around the world. Uh, and he got a lot of opportunities where people wanted to buy him out or and, and have him spread or do whatever. But my mom, who it was like, no, we don't see you enough as it is. Imagine if you had another restaurant. And, and this one restaurant takes care of the whole family. Why be greedy? So I grew up in an environment where they're like, we're only having one restaurant because it does all the needs that we need. We don't need more than this. They took care of all our college, all, anything we ever, I took drums, saxophone, violin, piano, guitar. I took tap lessons for 12 years. I went to shows. I went to uh, musical season, ballet season, or opera season. We'd go to shows, went to animation class. I got any of the film stuff I wanted. If I wrote a plan about what I wanted to do, and again, growing up in the Silicon Valley was probably an influence in that. Like, If I wrote a business plan of how I want, why I wanted this specific video camera, they would get it for me. Mm. But I had to do that work in order to convince them every, every step. So, And they sacrificed everything for the betterment of their kids, right? It's Everything. not so different Even at all. Even to this day, they would sell the restaurant in one second without a flinch for something that we needed. And they always said to me, they said, John, don't ever make a decision of one of your movies or any creative endeavor based off of fear because we have a restaurant. We have food. You're never going to go hungry. Hmm. And we have a home. You're never going to go without. That is a huge advantage. You may not have connections in Hollywood, but you have the best connection of it all, which you have safety. At any time, you can have it. So do push, 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 do everything else. And when you need us, we're here. 
So like many things in life, it is particularly in families that like yours, you know, you see the reflection sort of in the movie with, with the family duties, but you know, big props to your family, to your mom and dad for allowing you to become a film director, supporting you <laughs> yeah. and giving us your films. I mean, so I'm uh, incredibly grateful. So besides the Apple project, anything else on in the pipeline? Uh, I'm doing In the Heights is my next movie, which is a musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda that won the Tony several years ago, seven, eight years ago. And uh, we're shooting that in New York all next year. All Latinx cast, uh, almost all, 99%. That's a great musical. And to work with the king, Lin-Manuel Miranda, is like a dream. So. Amazing. So I'm going to be eating a lot of your places. Yeah, though. man. Welcome. You're, we, we got you. All right, man. We'll, we'll get you out of here. you said that. that Done. Is that, uh, recorded? Okay, good. <laughs> we'll feed you guys anytime. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. Thank you. All right.